Tonight, a cringe-worthy true story from the world of medicine. I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Hello and welcome back to all of our listeners from around the world and across the United States. We're so happy to have you here with us today. And I'm telling you what, you're in luck because uh, if you are a new listener, you have the opportunity to hit that like and subscribe button and join us every single week, every single Friday for a new and incredible story. And you can find us literally wherever you get your podcast from. And obviously, if you're listening to us, you're probably on whatever your favorite uh, places to listen to podcasts. So eh, you can stick with that. That's fine. Um, but but sit back, relax, because I'm telling you right now, we have a really, what I think is a pretty incredible story. Um, and, and like it was said in the intro, it's a little bit cringeworthy. It might have you going, ooh, 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 So if, uh, if medical uh, science tends to uh, get to you, this may not be your episode, <laughs> but uh, but trust me when I say it is absolutely incredible. And if if this discovery had not been made, it would have changed everything to do uh, with modern day medicine as we know it. Yes, um, and I'm, I am going to uh, just say that Gary, in the um, course of telling this story this uh, evening. Uh, I'm going to have difficulty not getting chill bumps myself. Um, this is a pretty cringe-worthy episode that we've located. And our main character is a German fellow by the name of Werner Forsman. Werner Forsman. Um, <clears throat> he was born in Berlin, Germany, back in 1904. His dad was an attorney who died in World War One. And his mother, believe it or not, had the maiden name of Hindenburg. So she, I believe, was related to a very important figure in German history, von Hindenburg. Isn't that also the yeah. um, balloon Ze that crashed? Zeppelin, yeah. Yeah, so his mother uh, came from uh, quite a prominent family. Now, he was raised as a Lutheran. That was one of the major religions in Germany at the time, uh, Lutherans and Catholics uh, pretty much uh, had the majority of uh, religious uh, affiliation. And he studied uh, medicine at the University of Berlin from 1922 to uh, 1929. And in 1929, he received his medical degree. So he was employed at the August Victoria Surgical Clinic near Berlin in 1929 after graduation and he started thinking about the theoretical basis of cardiac catheterization now let's let's just pause a minute cardiac catheterization that gary involves passing a thin flexible tube which is called a catheter <laughs> into the heart usually from the groin or the arm. Yes. The procedure is used for both diagnosis and treatment of coronary artery and heart disease. Oh, I'm cringing over here right now. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and, and it's a procedure that's done while you're awake. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Into the heart, mm-hmm. usually from the groin or arm, a, flin, a thin, flexible tube. So uh, Forsman was convinced that the technique could be highly beneficial in studying diseased living hearts um, through uh, the measurement of the volume, rate of blood flow, pressure, oxygen content. And he also wanted to be able to deliver drugs quickly to the heart in emergencies via catheter because at that time they weren't doing any such thing. They were using a very dangerous method of blind needle injection to Uh, the uh. chest wall. I'm having flashbacks to Pulp Fiction where Uma Thurman's on the ground and they have to put the the uh, adrenaline right into her heart to keep yeah. her from overdosing. And the, I know. am wringing my hand oh. right now. Oh, my gosh. I don't know if we're, we're going to survive this podcast. <laughs> this is this is pretty cringeworthy. I'm actually wringing my hands uh, in front of the microphone as we speak. Uh, let me see if I can get my imagination uh, out of this mix and continue with the story. It's hard not to visualize. Now, back in 1929, everybody in the medical community believed that a catheter might become tangled in the heart's chambers and cause it to stop beating. So the clinic at Eberswalde in Germany, where Forsman worked, refused to sanction any experiments, any such experiments, by this young 25-year-old physician. Nevertheless, he practiced on cadavers, proving to his own satisfaction that he could successfully insert a catheter into the crook of an arm and advance it through a vein into the right side of the heart. Now, he was so convinced that the procedure would work that he persuaded a fellow resident to insert a large needle into a vein in his arm secretly at night through which he then advanced a catheter toward his heart. However, fearful that Forsman might die, the colleague refused to continue, compelling the determined young man to temporarily abandon his self-experiment. But I don't know how far they got on this before his colleague just said, enough is enough already. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Uh, you know? <clears throat> so inserting a large needle into a vein in Forsman's arm. So a week later, with only a nurse to assist him by holding a mirror so that he could observe the tube's progress in a fluoroscope, he tried again. Oh. He ignored his department chief and persuaded the operating room nurse in charge of the sterile supplies. Her name was Gerda Ditson to assist him. She agreed, but only on the promise that he would do it on her rather than on himself. Can you imagine the doctor doing this on himself? Oh, man. That just uh, makes my my spine tingle. Well, but for her to say, uh, don't do it to yourself. Go ahead, do it on me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how well did they know each other? I I mean, holy cow. I I don't know. This is experimental. I I, I don't think I would voluntarily say, go ahead, stick a large needle in my arm and shove a tube up to my right ventricle. Yeah, when people thought that, okay, maybe it'll get tangled and just stop your heart from beating. Mm. So uh, she agreed, but on that promise. And, mm. however, Forsman tricked her, Gary. Oh, gosh. So he restrained her on the operating table, and he pretended to locally anesthetize and cut into her arm while he was actually doing it 
on himself. Oh, dear God. He anesthetized his own lower arm in the cubital region and inserted a urinary catheter into his anti-cubital vein. It wasn't previously used for urine. No, no. Purpose. Okay, no. good. So this was clean and sterile. Uh, yeah. I mean, he was experimenting. We don't know what kind of links he went to. He threaded it partly along before releasing Ditson, and who at this point she realized the catheter was not in her arm, and telling her to call the x-ray department. Listen to this, Gary. They walked oh. some distance to the x-ray department mm. on the floor below, mm. where under the guidance of a fluoroscope, oh, he shoved that catheter <laughs> the full 60 oh centimeters into his right ventricular cavity of his heart. This was then recorded on x-ray film showing that the catheter was lying in his right atrium. Oh, my gosh. <sighs> now, the head clinician at Eberswalde, although initially very annoyed, he recognized that Herner's discovery when shown the x-rays. He, he allowed Forsman to carry out another catheterization on a terminally ill woman whose condition improved after being given drugs uh, in this way. Uh, think about it. After observing, uh, inserting two feet of tubing, which is the amount he thought was necessary to reach the heart. He didn't know for sure. He thought that would reach the heart. That's a way to roll the dice, isn't it? Walking into the x-ray room, the exterior portion of that tube was dangling from his arm. About eight feet, maybe. He instructed the radiologist to take a picture as photographic proof that the tip of the catheter was correctly located in his heart. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? And I he mean, was conscious this whole time? Well, what I keep thinking is, what if that tube got snagged? Or somebody's oh. like, oh, you have a loose you have a loose string on your shirt, and they go to yank it. Or, oh. Gary, every every uh, sense in my body at the moment is, is cringing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got you to gotta think about these things, you know? Somebody, it's dangling too far. Somebody steps on it like a shoelace, you know? It's, it's just, oh. Woo. Well... In his, he wrote about this incident in his autobiography. Oh, did he? Yeah. And later on, many years later, uh, because he got into a lot of trouble at first. Well, yeah. So um, that year, November, the end of that year, November 1929, after he uh, conducted this, what I would say, horrific experiment, but successful, he published the results of it as a uh, Die Sondierung des rechten Herzens, the exploration of the right heart. And he suggested that catheterization would prove invaluable for injecting radio um, opaque uh, dyes to obtain heart x-rays for the identification of cardiac abnormalities and measuring blood pressure inside the heart. Now, unfortunately, like I say, Mm -hmm. this remarkable experiment uh, was derided by his colleagues in Germany. Actually, they viewed this uh, his experiments as a circus stunt. Ah, man. And I imagine they cringed, too, when they heard about it. So his pioneering work led to nothing of immediate significance. Now, um, he got discouraged by the skepticism and the rejection that he was experiencing. Uh, so he turned to other work. So from 1931-32, he served under Germany's most renowned surgeon, Dr. Ferdinand Sauerbruch, 
Sauerbruch, his name is, at the Charité Hospital in Berlin. And if you want to know more about the Charité Hospital in Berlin, I think there are a couple movies running on Netflix uh, about the Charité during World War II. And uh, the Charité had an international reputation due to, in, um, you know, its in innovative operations. Uh, but anyways, um, in 1933, uh, Forsman married Dr. Elsbeth Engel, a urologist, and he wasn't going anywhere in uh, cardiology because he was really an outcast for having done what he did. Yeah. So he turned to urology, like his wife. Uh, and so both he and his wife were urologists for quite a while. Now, he had six children between 1934 and 43. He had two sons, Wolf and Bernd. Uh, Wolf became an uh, anatomist and Bernd became a physicist. And uh, during the 1930s, uh, he was appointed chief of the surgical clinic of the city hospital at Dresden Friedrichstadt and of the Robert Koch Hospital in Berlin. He joined the Nazi party in 1932 and he remained a member until the end of the war in 1945. Now, it wasn't that he was uh, ideologically a Nazi. Um, you were required. If you were going to practice medicine or practice law or uh -huh. any of the professions we think <clears> of, <throat> yeah. it was a requirement to be a member of the party, mm -hmm. a dues-paying member of the party. You were required. Otherwise, you couldn't practice your profession. So all of the doctors, all of the surgeons in Germany at the time had to join the Nazi party. Wow. Now, um, the Nazi Physicians League was an immediate success uh, by the beginning of 33. That's uh, before the rise of Hitler to power. They had 2,000... 786 doctors, but um, they joined the party earlier in great numbers than any other professional group. And, uh, and so anyhow, like I say, it's not because Werner Forstmann was a Nazi. I guess technically you would have to say, <clears throat> yes, because he belonged to a Nazi organization, but he was not a Nazi. He was, he was a doctor. He was right. a medical doctor, and he was in that group because uh, it was a requirement. Um, and like I say, <clears throat> a crush of physicians had to join later on. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the in not by 1934, the waiting list had grown so long that physicians were told to remain, uh, refrain from any further applications until they could be processed. Wow. So uh, from uh, 1939 to 45, uh, during World War II, Forsman served as a medical officer. He was a major. <clears throat> in the German army, <clears throat> and he was captured by the Russians. Uh, but he escaped. He escaped from them and uh, made it to an American prisoner of war camp. And then after his release after the war, he couldn't practice his profession anymore, and so he, he worked as a lumberjack of all things. Really? Yeah. yeah. Cardiologist, yeah. urologist, lumberjack. lumberjack. That seems like the typical progression. <laughs> right. That's incredible in and of itself. Now... Then, after the war, that early publication that I mentioned earlier that he wrote? Yeah. It surfaced. It started to get read by people in the medical profession outside of Germany. And 11 years after the end of World War II in 1956, 
It was so well read and accepted that he was nominated for and won the Nobel Prize for Medicine. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So finally, he was recognized as the medical pioneer that he truly was. 1956, the Nobel Prize. He shared it with two other physicians, but never that doesn't take away from the honor uh, to go from a, a medical outcast where you can't even practice cardiology to yeah. where you're recognized with the Nobel Prize. <clears throat> that is something else. That is quite a journey. So... By 1972, he felt the need to publish his autobiography, and that was in German, Selbstversuch, um, and that's uh, Erinnerungen eines uh, Chirurgen, that's Experiments in Myself, Memo- Memoirs of a Surgeon in Germany. And in this book, he uh, not only talks about those heroic self-catheterization uh, experiments, but he also provided a vivid picture of the German uh, war campaign in Russia in which he served and of his dramatic escape across the Elbe River to the Americans. And then he also described the horrors of a military hospital outside Berlin during the final months of the war. So uh, that um, autobiography of his was uh, really an interesting eyewitness account from a unique uh, vantage point in history. Oh, absolutely. At one point during the war, he was stationed at the Brandenburg-Gurdon Penitentiary in Berlin. That was in 1943. And uh, scores of political prisoners were being beheaded by the guillotine at that time. Oh, dear Lord. And uh, and sometimes uh, the guillotine was working so proficiently that victims were being guillotined at less than two minutes apiece. Mm. And Forsman tried to... um, get the authorities to allow him to sedate the condemned prisoners, but they refused, and the prisoners could not be sedated before going to the guillotine. But he tried to get that humane procedure in place, but failed. Wow. So, although Forsman correctly predicted that catheterization could safely and successfully be used for diagnosis and treatment of heart ailments, like I say, it wasn't until after World War II that researchers in the United States, Britain, and elsewhere uh, developed comprehensive practical applications of the method. Isn't that something? Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> he and, uh, like I say, he had six children, and then uh, he died in uh, Germany of heart failure, of all things, on uh, 1st of June, 1979, and his wife died in 1993. Wow. However... <clears throat> One um, historian by the name of P.E. Baldry in a book called The Battle Against Heart Disease that came out in uh, 1971 said this, it was with much courage that these men performed, he was talking about others as well, Mm -hmm. uh, this investigation for the first time as many of those around them considered they would be submitting their patients to unjustifiable risks so that they well knew, therefore, that if anything untoward should happen, they would be subjected to the most stringent criticism. The immediate success of their method quickly silenced their critics, and before long it became an established diagnostic procedure in all uh, cardiological units. Now, I'll say this, it didn't quickly, it didn't quickly, um, you know, go away. He spent a major part of his lifetime rejected by the medical community. Yeah. 
uh, it took a while to uh, get the recognition he so richly deserved. But can you imagine what he had to do to prove something in medicine? It is something else. It really is. I'll tell you right now, it's not something I would do. No, no, uh-uh, no. <laughs> I mean, I just just thinking about that whole story. Yeah. It's just it, that to me is an incredible story. Yes, it really is. Now, on a side note to that, and you mentioned the Git team, and since we're talking about people who uh, self-experimented on themselves, uh, interesting fact: uh, there was a scientist who felt that the guillotine was inhumane because mm-hmm. he believed that uh, after the execution that the uh, the person who had been executed was not yet dead because death is determined on, uh, you know, brain activity, whether or not your brain is functioning. And um, he argued that the head was still alive for a good period of time afterward, but nobody believed him. And if I remember correctly, uh, this man who worked with an assistant said, uh, there's only one way to prove my theory is correct. So he had his assistant use a guillotine on him. He told him, I will blink. And however many blinks uh, I do. This is suicide. Yeah. But it was to prove a point. And uh, he said, (laughs) however many times I blink... Um, I think it was like a blink per second is how long uh, the brain continues afterward. And I believe it was 13 blinks. Mm. And it proved... Uh, Life for 13 that, seconds after. That, yeah, so it was not, uh, it was not mm. an immediate uh, um, uh. You know, extinguishing. But, but the reason why I brought that up is because we're, t- we're talking about somebody who, who sacrificed his, his health and safety to prove a point, to make a change. Yeah. And uh, just coincidentally, the, the, these two stories um, are similar in that, in that aspect. You have two scientists who wanted to prove a point to make a change to something because one thought, you know, we could make life better uh, by using this medical procedure and another person who thought we can change something that is inhumane um, to make a difference. So uh, both both people put their lives on the line. One of one one of them sacrificed it quite life. literally, and uh, the other um, for cardio. So, but uh, but but fascinating, fascinating stuff. But when you when you mentioned the guillotine part, that was one that had popped into my mind uh, as something that uh, had happened. A bizarre story, bizarre story. And I, I I'm not sure if I have all of those facts correct i'll have to look at it but it was something that i remember from high school uh had a great high school mm-hmm. history teacher who shared with us so many incredible stories well, different things in fact uh when we did the one on the tomatoes uh i think what was that last episode mm-hmm. um i remember hearing that not all the details about it but i do remember hearing the story of the um the man standing on the steps uh in front of everybody eating tomatoes and everybody's like, Oh, you're gonna die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's just a tomato. <laughs> Get over it. Yeah. So, anyways, but uh oh my gosh. I every time I, that's the second time I've heard that story, and every time I hear it, it's just oh man, I can't believe something like that is possible. But it did happen, 
And in those early days of medicine, they had to figure out something somehow because, you know, we didn't have computer models to help us. So it was yeah. all new territory. We have to uh, remember that back in the uh, early days of colonial America, uh, one of the accepted uh, medical procedures was to put leeches on people to uh, draw out diseased blood from the body. So medicine mm-hmm. evolves over time based on a lot of experiment. That's true. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because that, that procedure actually came back for a while in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of cringeworthy when you think about it, too. No, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Do you w- would you like us to put leeches on you to help you with your problem? Eh. <laughs> pass. Eh, pass. <laughs> let's, let's give something else a shot. So, well, uh, again, that was an incredible story. And uh, I, I can't wait to find out what we're going to be talking about next week. But until then... I'm Richard. And I'm Gary. And these are our incredible stories. Mm-hmm.